0: welcome to the passive mobile home park investing podcast with your host andrew keel this is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100 percent passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks
1: welcome to the passive mobile home park investing podcast this is your host andrew keel and today we have an amazing guest in up-and-comer in the mobile home park space in mr charlie and Sinelli. Before we dive in, I wanna ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Charlie is the principal of Rockstack Capital. He is a former tech entrepreneur turned full-time mobile home park investor operator. He owns and operates 11 mobile home parks, comprising of over 600 units and over $20 million in current market value. In addition to mobile home park investing, Charlie is also an angel investor and enjoys mentoring other entrepreneurs or people new to the real estate investing space. Charlie, welcome to the show.
0: Well, Andrew, thanks for having me. That's a very kind uh, introduction. You know, it's almost like I could have written it myself and uh, sent it to you before the podcast. So thank you for reading that. Uh, I do appreciate it. <laughs> Don't mention it. Uh, Charlie, what can
1: you tell us about your story and how you got into manufactured housing? I mean, all the way from tech entrepreneur to trailer park king. Give us the the dirty details, would you?
0: Yeah, sure. So I, I'm born and raised San Francisco Bay Area. So I, I think uh, tech. Uh, was sort of, uh, you know, indoctrinated uh, into me at a very young age. Uh, I, I had early aspirations of, you know, being uh, the cover of Fast Company magazine uh, and Forbes. Uh, and here I am, uh, you know, sort of this uh, mini uh, mobile home park mogul. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's it, my life took a, a little bit different direction than, than I expected it to maybe 10 years ago. Uh, but I'm just, you know, I I couldn't be any more elated uh, the direction that it took and and the work that I'm doing. It's actually, it's really, I feel like what I was always meant to be doing. So, so I'm I'm super happy the way things turned out, but, but yeah, uh, you know, always been entrepreneurial, Uh, started my, my career really by dropping out of college to join a fast growing uh, sort of tech travel startup, learned a ton there, really got my, not just my degree, but my MBA there. Uh, I got to sort of be a part of a team from five people to fifty people, and 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 sort of go through rounds of raising funds and seeing the growing pains of a company, and and how you go from. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of parallels too, of like when you go from like one and two parks to like you know five to ten to fifteen. Right. I mean, that's something you know I'd love to talk to you later on this podcast about too. But but yeah, so I got to sort of go through that experience, and then. Uh, once that sort of felt like it was no longer an education for me, it started to feel like it was a job all of a sudden. I realized, okay, I need to quit. So I did. And, uh, and I started two uh, sort of online businesses myself. Uh, one really took off with the media. Uh, that was Park Please. That was like an Airbnb for parking spaces. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun with that, um, raised some capital around that. Uh, you know, people thought that made me rich. It didn't. It just put me in the media, um, which was fun at the time being in my young 20s. But ended up being able to to exit and sell that, uh, pay back my investors, um, get a good story, learn a lot. Um, I was certainly not well-equipped at the the time to to run a business. I was able to start one, but but not run and grow one yet. A lot to learn. Started another one, uh, more like a side project. uh, Sold that as well. Uh, and then I had a third business going in the background this whole time that I was running and, and then was continued to run. And that, that took off too. And, and that was making me good income. You know, it wasn't making me wealthy. It wasn't making me a millionaire, but it was making me good income. Uh, and uh, somewhere in that that story, I, I had met my wife. Uh, you know, of course, I think she thought I was doing well, but I was broke. <laughs> this, you know, I, I remember when I took her on my first date, I, I was hoping the credit card wouldn't bounce. But uh, I I think she knew I I didn't have much money. And so anyway, so so we I ended up that third business, though, you know, I was doing well and started to make some good money. We ended up having um, uh, my first daughter, Uh, you know, we were living sort of in a pretty modestly. um, And uh, I just wanted to diversify my income. Uh, So, you know, I had saved up a nest egg of around $120,000 plus or minus. And and uh, you know, in a lot of places in the world, that's a lot of money, but but not in the Bay Area, it's really not not much. And so, a lot of people thought maybe I should buy a, a single family home. You know, it's the responsible thing to do. Um, you know, I'm a young man, starting a family, but instead, I bought a 31 pad mobile home park in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> and you know, just like dropping out of college, people thought I was crazy again. And uh, it, it turned out to be probably you know, aside from meeting my wife and having my daughter and son, you know, the, the single best decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, it, it it cash flowed very well. Um, you know, I sort of implemented, you know, the standard plan that's out there to kind of, you know, value add these things. Uh, and then in a year and a half, I was able to more than double the price I bought it for. So, I mean, it was like an 800% return on my, on my capital for my down payment, um, sold it, uh, you know in between that time I had bought a second park in Pittsburgh, a very small one, um, you know about 25 pounds or so. and uh, that was doing very well. I, you know so then then I basically sort of took the proceeds from the, the Tucson park, uh, bought my first big institutional size community in Indiana. I uh, decided I just wasn't really loving the deals I, I, I saw in Arizona as much anymore. You know, I was looking for higher yield. Uh, I heard that the tenants up in the Midwest section were, were good tenants uh, and I can attest that's true. Typically, it's it's a nice tenant base um, in the North. And so, and the park in Pittsburgh was doing very well. And, and so, yeah, so then for a while, I was kind of juggling these two things. I was juggling, you know, running this one business, which really was my main focus. And then sort of on the side, I was, you know, running these properties that were my own. And, and you know, sometimes I would uh, have friends and family co-invest in, in a deal with me you know but but one really started to outpace the other and my interest in, in one really started to outpace the other and that was in real estate i've always had a passion for real estate uh and, and so then um you know looking back i mean thank goodness i did choose to diversify my income and not be dependent on just one one channel because covid came and and that just took everything by surprise and and that other business had to shut down i mean it's not even you know i mean we're, we're rebooting it you know, I won't be the active operator on that business anymore. But otherwise, I mean, it would have been Andrew, like a, I mean, I would have had a scary time like trying to feed and survive and like feed my family if I didn't diversify my income. And so, um, so anyways, I just doubled down on mobile home parks. And uh, you know, by this point, I sort of had a process, I had the right technology in place and, you know, you know, figured I could learn the rest. Um, I I had a lot of people sort of at this point you know, wanting to invest in my deals. And I just wasn't really, you know, I didn't know if that was a path I wanted to jump in fully. Cause I, you know, that's a big responsibility as, as you're aware of, right. When you take on investor capital and, and I've been down that road before with startups and it can be a lot of pressure. Uh, but once I felt very confident, um, you know, in, in sort of the, uh, the space and, and my experience uh, in it uh, to execute, I, I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, you know, found some really good deals and sort of doubled down. And I think over the last, uh, you know, year and a half, yeah, I mean, probably tripled my portfolio size and uh, it was a good time. I'm not, I'm not sure about how it was for you, but COVID was a great time to buy this last year.
1: It's, it really was, you know, I think at, back in March and April, you know, we did the same thing. We kind of put, well, I guess we didn't do the same thing. We, we kind of paused a little bit. And we saw some other operators that were just still very bullish and we were like wow you know they're they're still going for it and then we waited a couple months and we were like okay you know the the, the collections weren't as bad as we were expecting let's get back in the in the game here so right wow. and and I,
0: and I and i had a couple of contracts that were that were you know sort of um uh they were in contract during covid but i didn't want to cancel them so i just found a way, hey, let's extend the contract 60, 90 days, you know, we're gonna, we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. So some were very willing to do that. But uh, yeah, which I, smart,
1: I, which is smart, because we had a deal under contract and the, the financing changed, you know, the whole financing option changed, you know, we were looking at agency debt. And then they required like 18 months of, you know, reserves at closing. And, you know, it just changes the amount of capital you need to to close the deal and everything. So yeah, that's nice that your sellers were willing to extend.
0: Yeah, yeah. I some were very cooperative and I'm appreciative of that. But I I and I'm sure, like you and like everybody else in the space, or anybody else who was just alive doing anything during that first, you know, two months of three months of COVID, you know, when it hit from between March, April, May, very scary time. But and of course, I was like, I just built my my I put all my eggs in this basket. I just built this thing, it's my, my little empire here. <laughs> and i was so afraid you know what was going to happen but i think the way i calmed down was i said okay like i am sort of at the uh, the backstop of the economy i mean i'm in the affordable housing space and uh you know if 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 my tenants can't pay their rent then i know no one else in this in this you know country's going to be able to pay their rent and the government's not going to let that happen right so i mean i felt pretty confident that you know i knew i could at least service the debt and of course our tenants also have skin in the game, right? I mean, they, they do want to keep their equity in their homes and they don't want to lose that. You know, we were proactive and reaching out to all of our tenants and and making sure we're, you know, we said, Hey, if you're having trouble and you obviously you got to prove it, but if you're having trouble, like we're here to help you, we're going to figure this out together. You know, don't go, don't go radio silent on us. That's the worst thing that can happen. You know? So, uh, no, yeah. I, I think that kind of, you know, I knew the government had to step in. I knew they did. And, and I also felt confident that, I mean, given our rents in the market, most of our tenants were going to be able to pay their bills and they were.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We had a similar, you know, COVID experience, uh, but now it's a weird kind of don't know, backside of this because now it's like, hey, people are still making more on unemployment than they were at their day job. So it's, uh, you know, the incentives aren't matching up appropriately. Uh, yeah. But that's a whole nother conversation. Right. But let me let me go back to this Tucson deal, this thirty one lot park. You know, what even got you interested in this deal in mobile home parks in general? Was this just like, hey, this looks like a good investment or did you like research the asset class and say, hey, this is what I want to do?
0: Yeah, I, I love this question. It's also always a question I ask my sellers too because I always want to find out, hey, how did you get involved in mobile home parks? <laughs> you know, it's just a fun sort of mystery to unveil. Yeah, and if I recall for you, I think it was because you you were doing the mobile home flipping, right? And then you kind of said, hey, well, I should just get the park.
1: Yeah. Um, Lonnie deals, that's exactly yeah, right.
0: it, it, And so for me, um, and, and I looked into doing Lonnie deals too, but I was just sort of, you know, I, I took a moment to, I knew I wanted to invest in real estate. And so I took a moment to sort of, you know, just study the landscape of real estate, the different asset classes and sort of unpeeled it. And I was like, okay, hmm, maybe do I buy like a, like a duplex? Do I buy a quadplex? Do I buy a, a small, you know, garden style apartment complex? And, and then, you know, just through that rabbit hole of just uh, research, I, I came across mobile home parks on the internet. I don't know how I came across it. Some forum. And, and it was one of those things where I just, I, I I never understood mobile home parks. I would see them from time to time. My grandma lived in one at one, one point. I think like a lot of people, I would just was naive to it. I just thought, why would I want to own a mobile home park? Like, I mean, aren't don't mobile homes like, you know, depreciate in value. They don't typically go up in value. Do you know why would I want to own something like that? But once I really understood uh, sort of, you know, the, you know, thesis behind the investment where it's like, oh, no, like the tenants own their homes, um, you know, and I want to own, you know, the, the land and essentially be this, uh, you know, glorified, you know, parking lot um, with, you know, utility structures, it, it became a lot more attractive. Uh, and then also once I sort of understood, uh, you know, other factors that go into it, right? So I mean, I look at things from like a market demand um, point of view too. And so, uh, w- you know, the, the need for affordable housing is just something I, I don't see decreasing, you know, in my lifetime or any time. Uh, I mean, we're just, we, we seem to have a, a wider and wider gap year over year, you know, in housing affordability in this country. And so, so from a market standpoint, um, you know, I just felt very confident in in the product and then in the service. Um, and, and then, of course, you look at other factors, right? I mean, they're they're not building any more of these things. Um, You know, cities create, you know, uh, all sorts of laws and ordinances to so basically discriminate against affordable housing, you know, uh, and we can go on about that, why they do that. Um, So it make it very hard to build manufactured housing communities. Uh, So limited supply rising demand curve are all very attractive. And there were some other things I think that that really caught my eye. I'm trying to recall all of the points, but Well, well, you know, I just think it's cool. I was wondering
1: if you were going to tie the two together, but park please, right? Like the the Airbnb of parking spaces, you know, did that have some influence from, you know, from the parking space? Cause I know like Kevin Bupp, you know, he's buying, uh, you know, parking lots now and it kind of has some overlap to the business model in mobile home parks.
0: You know, it it didn't, uh, but the only overlap that, that was there for me was I'm always looking for chaotic industries, right? I'm looking for things that are a mess because that's where like, you know, that's where the value is to be created. And, and that's how you make money, right. Is by, by, by creating value, by, by solving problems. And so parking, you know, when I got into that and it still is, I mean, it's still a very fragmented, you know, industry um, that needs a lot of solutions. Uh, And there's some really cool people out there, you know, working on solving those things. Uh, But for me, it was like mobile home parks were like another, like, you know, chaotic, fragmented, misunderstood category. And I was like, this is it, right? I mean, because it is mom-and-pop owned. The data around the rents are just, you know, nearly non-existent. Uh, the professionalism in this industry doesn't exist really yet. I mean, it is now, right? I mean, there's guys like you and, and many others who are bringing that to the table. Um, but uh, but but it wasn't so much in 2016, 15, really, when I was looking into the space, and even today, it largely lacks. But I think that you know we're we're getting there. So, the, the idea of like a chaotic industry is is maybe the overlap.
1: And, and before we started recording, you know, I think we were talking a little bit about this. You know, it's it's amazing to me the new blood that's coming into the mobile home park space. Right? It's you know from the Bay Area, you know, tech uh, background to you know mobile home parks you know with the stigma you wouldn't think but the more and more operators that I interview and that I meet you know they're very intelligent and a lot have finance backgrounds or you know some other sort of more white collar uh background and they all see the the benefits to mobile home park investing because it it is moded you know there's no doubt about it um which is which is pretty awesome but uh would you mind I'm just curious the other business that you had was it like in hospitality or something. The one that kind of took a dive in during COVID.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, So no, that was a festival. Um, So, so similar, right? Yeah. It was, it was a big monthly festival in the Bay area that people loved and, and uh, it was a big event. Um, And, you know, we're, we're excited to bring that back and and we are bringing that back to the Bay area. Uh, But yeah, I, you know, not a good year for the event industry. So, yeah, that had um, and and I think to go back to your point too a little bit about, you know, the young blood coming into the space or even just, you know, maybe more professionalism coming into the space. I think everyone's going to win in, uh, you know in that ultimately because what I'm seeing and, and let me know from your standpoint, but I'm seeing a lot of people coming in and buying mobile home parks and improving them, right? I mean, I, it's not like hey, you know, these tenants are, you know, sticky tenants, let's raise the rent and keep the park the same. No, I'm saying, hey, let's come in, let's run background checks. Let's bring a level of professionalism to affordable housing that exists already in a lot of, you know, large apartment style complexes. And let's make these safe, you know, affordable and a place, you know, that people who live there can be proud to call a home. Let's not, let's take these from being trailer parks and turn them into manufactured housing communities. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, some foolishly look at people who are in the space as maybe taking advantage of poor people. And there's a really, really weird uh, sort of notion out there I get sometimes um, that if you're investing in affordable housing, it's like an evil thing. And I'm like, I don't understand that. I mean, so you're okay investing in the middle class, but you don't want to invest in, you know, uh, in, in the affordable housing. Um, so, uh, I'm only seeing net positives come out of this thing. And, and, uh, you know, I know for a fact, like, you know, my litmus test in the community is like, I want to get it to a point where if I had to, I would have my family live there. Right. I mean, I want to make sure I'm building something I'm proud of and it takes time, you know, and it it takes investment, but, uh, but ultimately I'm, I'm super excited, uh, about the direction I, I see this industry heading into. Yeah, 100,
1: percent agree, and that, I think that's what's really cool is these mom and pops that have, uh, you know, haven't really kept up with the maintenance, and that you know there's a lot of tree trimming needed and road work needed, and uh, you know we're all aligned. I had a meeting in in we we're doing some due diligence in a park in Michigan, and we met with the city zoning official at the park, and he had this really just bad taste in his mouth because the owner that we were buying the property from really just hasn't done anything for the last like 15 years. And you know, they had created new restrictions on the age of the homes that could be brought into the community. And you know, I think that there is some good behind that, you know, these these kind of new trying to clean up these communities. But you know, what I explained to to the, the gentleman in zoning is I said, you know, our interests are aligned. You know, the better this community looks the better financing I'm gonna be able to get on this community, and you know, the better cash flow I'm gonna be able to create for ourselves and for the investors. So yeah, when when I had that conversation, we were we started to be on the same team and and I was pointing out things that you know we plan to do, and it it turned the it turned the conversation around, which I agree with you. It's just being able to improve these assets is a win-win, you know, for the residents, they're getting a better place to live. And you know for for investors we're able to, to get really good returns, which is awesome. Um, yeah. let's let's dive into that side of things. you know from a investor standpoint, uh, maybe you could tell us you know what do you think are the most important things that passive investors need to know or look out for before they invest into mobile home parks?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So, and it's what I think about a lot because I also am looking forward to the day when I'm on that side of the table. I mean, uh, it's tough for me because I think like you, I mean, we enjoy being active operators, but I know one day uh, I'm going to have to, you know, be on the other side of the table so I can, you know, enjoy my life, uh, you know, as well. But I, I mean, I think for a passive investor, I think the number one thing that I would recommend is first learn the space um, you know, invest your time learning the asset and the space, you know, just as much as if you were going to run it actively yourself. And and then I think number two, you know, because I I think if you, if you have that, that's a good qualifier, you can have better conversations with, with the sponsor or, or, you know, whatever group you're going to invest with. Um, and, and you'll be able to, to sort of, you know, have, you know, not just a more quality conversation, but, but you'll also be able to sort of, you know, sniff them out and sort of see if, if they know what they're talking about or if they're just, you know, full of hot air. So sure. I would recommend that. Um, second thing is 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 get to know who you're investing with, who you're backing. Um, you know, is this you know someone that is you know you'd be in the trenches with, someone that's not going to leave or or desert something if times get hard, because times get hard. You know, things don't always go right. You might buy a property or, or a community and you think it has a good tenant base and then you get in there and you find out, you know, 3 4 months later that it's it's not what you thought it was. But, you know, hey, as long as you've done the due diligence and the bones are good, you know, you you could you could work with that. But but you know, it's not easy, right? I mean, turnarounds, you know, or just sort of surprises after acquisitions uh, aren't easy and there's there's always curveballs. Uh, that's a guaranteed thing. So you want to make sure that the person who is, you know, you're backing you know, is someone who you know is is not is not likely to ever give up. Other things is just um, you know, I think uh th- there is sort of a trust factor. You want to, you know, maybe check the references if you don't know the person, you know, personally. And uh, you know, I mean it's always a question to ask too, is is what are you investing in this deal? You know, is this person investing, you know, their 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 money? Are they putting their money where their mouth is? Uh and maybe, you know, maybe their their recourse for the loan, and that's okay too. I mean, okay, well. You know, what's your what's your asset sheet i mean what's recourse is it your house I mean let's find out a little bit um, and then their just their general background um, maybe in business or or in the asset class in particular some use cases uh, I, I think you know th- that's all probably a good starting point.
1: Yeah and I bet a lot of that overlaps into what you do with your angel investing ventures, right would you agree?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I have certainly made some investments where I'm like, well, I'm not so sure about, I, I believe in the space, you know, that they're in needs some solutions. I don't know if this is the right solution for it, but if I really like the person I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm going to bet on you and, you know, you're going to figure it out. And, and then even if you don't, you know, if you pivot, you know, into something else, um, you know, I, I know that this is a person I want to sort of be backing on the next one too. Um, so absolutely. It's it's all about, you know, you know, I, I hate to say the old thing, but it's it's you know, like like the jockey is more important than the horse, right? You want to back the jockey.
1: Totally. Totally. I think that's great advice. And a lot of other people we've interviewed have said said the same thing. Charlie, who was your first investor into one of your mobile home park deals?
0: My first investor would be. Uh, it was a, a deal between, uh, I had my parents and uh, two friends. They were my first investors, yeah. So this was after I sort of had used my own capital, uh, which I wanted to test out first, my, my thesis into this space. Uh, and, and then I brought in my parents and, and two friends. And, and then I since have opened it up to, uh, you know, professional uh, contacts, um, friends, um, and uh, and even just some people who I've never met, <laughs> which is kind of fun too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, what would you say has been the toughest hurdle for you in the business thus far?
0: Uh, scaling, right? Uh, which which I, I feel like, you know, knock on wood, I have a good handle on right now. And and you know, you and I were talking before there. I mean, you know, we're always still learning. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of great models, and if you go through sort of, you know, I think everyone goes to the Frank and Dave boot camp, and I recommend anyone who wants to get in the space like should invest the time uh, and the money to go through that. I think it's a, it's a great starting point, and it and it's a it, it gives you the model for one park, maybe two parks, but I think if you want to get to a level of you know scale and you and you really want to have you know a portfolio of parks and you want to you know do this full time uh you, you know that model doesn't apply anymore. And, and so that's why I, I i realized that I was going crazy. I was trying to do the the sort of you know standard have a have a manager that handles like five or ten different things at one park and and then i'm gonna manage the manager and you know and then i had 10 managers and i was asking too much from each one of them and, and then one would quit and then i have to go reinvest time to onboard a new manager. so so i, I I've learned uh you know to treat this much more like I would treat, uh, any other business and, and to sort of have, you know, divisions of specialty and divisions of labor, uh, and to get, you know, people who are are full-time and, and focused on certain things, um, within the business. Uh, and so scaling, I think what has been my biggest challenge, uh, but, uh, but I, I, feel pretty, I'm in a good spot right now and I'm really happy with the team that I have. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know
1: right around, you said 600 lots, right? Yeah, that's a that's a tough place to be. You know, I I uh, y- you get over that stage, like you said, where you got you know a couple parks, two or three parks, and uh, at this level, you're kind of you're big enough now to make a couple corporate level hires. And as you get bigger, it, it definitely gets easier. Where you're able to afford, you know, off of your management fees, you're able to afford to to hire good talent. But in the early stages, I was foregoing cash flow to be able to pay for. The team to be right. able to keep building and that's that's the thing that you know they don't really tell you at, at, at the frank and dave boot camp you know but i i agree with you for one or two parks it's a great baseline of the industry and there's lots to learn but as jefferson Lilly says in mobile home park 2.0 the scalability level uh it it's it's difficult you know because you're trying to put the public the puzzle pieces together so.
0: Yeah, 100%. That's right. And, and um, I, I think what 2.0 looks like for, for one organization isn't necessarily what 2.0 should look like for another organization. I think, you know, it's really important to talk to to other folks who are, are leaders in the space like yourself, Jefferson, you know, Ryan Smith, uh, you know, I think Daniel Weisfield over, at you know, in, in the West Coast doing some great things, and, and there's more. Uh, and so talking to folks who I think have scaled already, learning hey what's your model how do you figure this out but not necessarily mimicking that cuz you got to also sort of say okay well what are my goals you know what do i feel like i need in the business and and i think you know you know learn but but also uh you know don't just follow right i think that's important too oh
1: i totally agree charlie what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and maybe this aligns with your purchase criteria at Rockstap rock stack capital. Maybe you can kind of just elaborate on that.
0: Well, I, I don't know if it aligns with my uh, criteria because the perfect park is hard to find. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. You know, the perfect park in my eyes, I would love, and this might be a little contrarian to a lot of people. I would love, you know, a big old park, right? I mean, that part's not contrarian, but I would love it to be 100% occupied with like all brand new, like, you know, recent 10-year, model homes that are, and I'd like it to be 100% park owned homes. Oh my
1: goodness. All right. <laughs> We're going to have to stop right there. You're going to have to elaborate on this for me.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know it's not popular uh, and, and look, I will still put them on rent to own contracts. I don't really want to rent them. Um, but boy, I love that extra cash flow. Uh <laughs> You know, I mean, it's um, uh, it's just, you know, it, it pays for a lot. And, and i love that it's not capped you're not paying a cap on the extra cash flow and i think that's one of the like golden goose elements of this this space is that uh you know we're only capping the lot rent and you know i mean sometimes the the home payment is you know 80% of, of what the lot rent is uh, on average and it's like that's extra cash flow that's real money that you're not paying a multiple on so so i mean you know, the downside is, is that, yeah, if it's a bunch of older homes, I mean, you know, and then you get turnover and, and you got to refix them and rehab them. I mean, th- there is cost to that. So it, it's kind of, to me, it's like, I'd almost rather have a community that's 100% tenant owned or almost, or it's like 80% park owned home because it's kind of like harder, I think, to maintain something that's a little bit in the middle. Cause you got to like have like a handyman and stuff like that. Yeah. But no, I, I love park owned home income.
1: That's great. Uh, very interesting. You know, I I know that Dylan Marma and Charles DeHart, they have a very similar model right now where they are buying big communities that are park-owned home and then, you know, slowly converting them over a five-year time horizon. Yeah. And I think that's a brilliant method, you know? And I know I spoke with Sam Hales and he said the same thing that, you know, it's the homes are there, right? Like that's one of the hardest parts is to get the homes, bring them in, do the piers and everything. But these homes are there. You just have to convert them, you know, over a time horizon. And from my experience, it's difficult. I mean, it's, you gotta, you gotta play that, uh, that balance of, you know, do you have a maintenance guy? Do you not? And there's, there's just other expenses, right? Like, you know, while you're going through that whole process and rehabbing homes and stuff, but, uh, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to make money and, Uh, that's, that's, that's one of them. That's an interesting model. I know there's a fund out there right now, buying mobile home parks just with private utilities and you know, it's getting creative because the market's getting more competitive. So I think the, I think it's interesting for sure. What hurdles do you think the MH industry will face moving forward?
0: Regulation. I think, I think, um, and this is, I think, something I'm afraid of is probably rent control regulation. Yeah, I, I think that, and this kind of goes back to sort of what we were talking about, where you know we are coming in and and we are um, improving the communities and we're investing in the communities. But the thing is, is that Ma and Pa, who you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, I know everyone loves mom and Pa, It's like a romantic, you know, sort of idea around this. But you know, more times than not they were unintentional slumlords. I mean, you know, they didn't maybe mean to be, but they figured, hey, I'm not going to raise the rent, but I also don't want to fix anything. And then the tenants, you know, sort of were like, well, you know, lot rent's only 180 bucks. You know, I mean, maybe if I just don't bother them, I mean, they're not going to raise the rent, right? So I I think that happened for like decades. But then you have these things that are like dilapidated, they're falling in the ground, they're practically melting sometimes. (laughs) And uh, and it's like, it's either, who reinvest in it make it a mobile home park, be a good landlord, fix things, but like rent's not going to be $180. That's not going, you know, otherwise it's going to be torn down and we're going to build condos here. So, uh, so, you know, when we have to come in and raise that $180 rent to $400, which is where it needs to be to support, not just, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the the sort of, you know, market use for the, for the land, but also sort of debt service with the bank, operating costs. Um, That's the right thing to do. The problem is, is that I think that politicians on, on the Hill, you know, hear that, and they think evil people are, are taking advantage of, of tenants and, um, and, and jacking up the rate, you know, 25%, 40%, 30%. And to an average day person who's paying like a maybe a thousand dollars a month you know a month for their rental or something, they're thinking, wow, that sounds greedy. But when you realize you're talking about 30 bucks a month, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not, it's the right thing to do. And, and so I, I think I'm afraid of the headlines and I'm afraid of the regulation that will come because I think it's only going to hurt the progress of affordable housing. Um, because I mean, what's the other option? I mean, class C apartments and, and section eight vouchers. Um, they're not great places to live most time. Uh, the tenant, you know, does does not have any pride of ownership. They're not going to own their home. There's no long-term security for them, and it's also, you know, largely subsidized by by taxpayers. So, um, I, I think that's what I'm afraid of: is, is, is us is us as an industry not getting ahead of the narrative uh, and letting sort of you know this uh, uh, you know clickbait headlines uh, dictate policy.
1: Yeah, valid valid concerns for sure. Uh, Charlie, what's the value proposition at Rockstack Rockstack Capital, and what makes you guys different? What are your property types that you're looking to acquire? Uh, what's your goals for the long term? Uh, tell us tell us about your business if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, sure. So, so Rockstock uh, Capital is is not like a very big group. I mean, it's, it's pretty much me. It's my, it's my capital that that I've been, you know, sort of building up over the years. And and then I I invite uh, people to invest along with me um, in deals. Uh, But I'm typically, you know, generally uh, the largest investor in my deals. Um, And so it's really just sort of, uh, you know, this, this group I've created for myself to, to grow my own wealth. Um, and and my own you know sort of um, you know streams of cash flow and, and then I invite uh, you know friends and family and colleagues uh, to to join along um, you know uh, should should they want to and it should they be you know uh, accredited, uh, criteria I I have two sort of funds right now that I kind of view it as you know one's legacy long term buy and hold uh, and then one is um, you know sort of value add. Come in, do the right things, and flip. Um, and and so that's sort of my, uh, my 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 thesis right now on that. Very cool. Do you have
1: a minimum number of lots, or you know, public private utilities, uh, you know, MSA type of type of target?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I always start with the MSA. I want really strong demand. Uh, I don't think my criteria is too far from most. You know, I, I want to be in a place of a diverse economy. I want to have you know. You know, be very close to a major metro of at least 100,000, you know, uh, people and up. Hopefully, it's much higher than that. Uh, I've only dealt with public utilities so far. I'm not opposed to private utilities. I just haven't done that yet. Um, and, and I found enough deal flow still in, in the public utility realm that I haven't felt the need to, to jump in. and And I don't have, you know, like like a very I'm not out raising a fund. And so I don't have the same pressure as some people might where, where they have to kind of really, you know, be quick to close on deals. So I, I can take my time a little bit more. And, and then uh other than that, um, you know, I, I just, you know, like lot sizes, uh, if it's not near, you know, 30 minutes of a community I already own, then it's probably got to be at least 50 pads. Um, but if it's near a community I already own, then then I can do less. Um or or sometimes if it's a uh um uh like the value is just so great that uh you know we we wanna you know sort of come in and it's so undermarketed, maybe it's a 15 pad park, but we realize we can come in and do the right things and then you know in, in a year we can sell it for double or triple the price. I mean, I'm not gonna pass that up either. So so the, you know, there's like the opportunistic side, uh, and then you know, there's sort of the long term, you know, legacy buy hold side.
1: Totally. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Wisefield was telling me about like a 15 lot park that they bought right in Seattle, right in the, you know, downtown area and, uh, you know, had to do very little, but the appreciation there just just skyrocketed. So uh, a lot, I think a lot of operators are, they have this lot number goal in mind. And I, I agreed with it to an extent because it's harder to manage the smaller assets and pay a manager enough. but uh, But yeah, there's definitely opportunities out there for sure. And,
0: and I think that the big opportunity right now truly is anything under 50 pads. I mean, I mean, it's, it, you're going to be competing against institutional or large professional portfolios for anything over 50 pads at this point. It used to be over hundred, right? And I think now it's over 50. Um, and so I, I still think that, you know, if you're playing within, you know, call it the 20 to 50 pad range. Um, there's, there's, that's kind of the next leg where I think there's so much value to be had. And I do think you're going to eventually see the guys. Now they're buying the 50 pad plus they're going to move down eventually into the 30, 25 fifties. Uh, so, um, so I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity left there too.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, if you can manage them i think that's a i think you're right there's a lot of value to be had there for sure so i think you're one of the first operators that have have said that so uh very cool um that you're you're different in that aspect
0: i mean i may be wrong but so don't listen to me <laughs> that's
1: a no thing. no i think <laughs> i think you may be onto there and if you can cluster them together you know all the better yeah,
0: that's the all thing better. is yeah if you can cluster them together i know i have three parks like that uh i i have one that that was a 25 pad park and then I added on one that was like a mixed use property, a warehouse, apartments, and 10 pads. I mean, we're talking two two minutes away. And then I added on another one that was 35 pads and some self-storage. And now altogether I have like 75 units and they're all two minutes apart. Oh, so wow. yeah. you know, I mean, w- what's the difference between that and like one big park? I mean, it's almost the same to me. Like I, I I can run it the same.
1: Yeah. You probably could get one manager to handle all three, which you know, you get you get scale, which yeah. is great. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, it was a pleasure having you. Uh, you know, thank you so much, man. I I really appreciate it.
0: Andrew, pleasure's mine. Uh, I look forward to, you know, hopefully seeing you in person one of these days. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you and 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 hang out. Uh, but but this was this was a nice start.
1: Definitely. Uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so?
0: Sure. So, uh, I, I make myself available as much as possible. They can email me, um, uh, it's simply Charlie, uh, that's with an IE, uh, Charlie at rock stack Uh, and, uh, you know, if you have a deal you want to review, if you want my opinion or insight, um, you know, I'm happy to help where I can.
1: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. That's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.